if you're like me at all, you're not a big fan of getting out of your comfort zone naturally and doing things that you don't like to do. And that's especially true when it comes to uh, cultural explorations and doing things in a different culture or in a different way. It might be because you just don't like the unfamiliar. It might be because you're afraid of making a mistake. But this is part of the uh, deal that we have to talk about in becoming all things to all people. That's what we're going to do today. Let's get to it. Welcome back to the All Things to All People podcast. I'm Michael Burns. This is episode, I think we're on episode 16 now, uh, which is uh, really cool. Thank you so much for all of you that support and continue to listen and give great feedback. And we have uh, once again, uh, one of our favorite guests on the podcast here, Jason Alexander, is with us from Madison, Wisconsin. Jason, how are you doing today? Yeah. Good. Very good. Thank you. Good to hear your voice and to see your face. We are, uh, um, I'm hoping once again that Zoom cooperates with us today and, and doesn't skip too much. And I actually look forward to a time when we can uh, record a couple of these uh, sitting next to each other. Wouldn't that, yeah, that would be amazing. Right? Yeah. Even if we have to be six feet apart while we do it. Um, right. And, I think we're getting close to that time. We're starting to uh, ease up now as as we record this, ease things up. But um, amen. So we are going to be in chapter 11 today of all things to all people. The chapter is entitled, but I won't do that. And Jason, without further ado, I'm going to jump in as is our normal pattern and uh, read some here and uh, jump in whenever you want. You are the star today. So uh, good. I'm just going to, I know that's the way you like it. So I'm glad you know that. That's good. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I, I think everybody is aware, you know, they, they, they <laughs> yeah. listen, they know. Um, yeah. And yeah. yeah. So, um, so here we go. In, I think you'll like this, uh, the opening part of the chapter. This is. I'm, al- I'm already sold. I know where this is headed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's your favorite singer. So. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> in 1993, singer Meatloaf released his album, Bad Out of Hell 2, Back Into Hell. The first single release from that album was the power ballad, I'd Do Anything for Love. The song written by Jim Steinman soared to the top of the charts in 28 countries and went platinum, energized by a video with a strange mix of the contemporary and medieval Beauty and the Beast imagery. The song tells of all the things that the singer would do for love and how he would never lie to his lover. It's punctuated by the famous chorus as he dramatically quavers, I would do anything for love, but I won't do that. Jason, do you want to sing that line at all? Or are you? I would do anything for all. That's perfect. <laughs> perfect. Unbelievable. Oh, that's beautiful. Uh, maybe we'd have you do the whole song. Um, yeah. You know, it's interesting, by the way, um, when you write, I learned this as I've been writing books. 
Um, you can't quote like the, the, a whole song or a whole verse or whatever that actually is a copyright mm, infringement. Mm. So you can only kind of copy it, you know, uh, quote a few words or something um, and do it that way. So I, I learned that from my uh, proofreader fact checker. Yeah, wow. Yeah. So, so on the podcast, what if we sang the whole song? What would happen? Could you get in trouble? Uh, that's a good one. I don't know. I know we couldn't play the whole song or even a part of it. <laughs> right, but right, right, right. It, it probably depends. Like if you sang it, they'd be like, you know, that's copyright infringement. If I sang it, they'd be like, that's an entirely different song. You're okay. Yeah. So well, they'd be upset for yes. It'd be uh, maligning uh, <laughs> an otherwise uh, popular song. Yeah, you sullied the reputation of this song. It's right. There yeah. You go. Yeah. Oh, uh, we're gonna get far today, aren't we? I can. I can tell. Right. We're gonna. Yeah. Well. We're we're covering important stuff so far. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right. Let me let me yeah. get back here, and that starts the great mystery. What is that, Meatloaf? What is it that you won't do? You won't eat vegan cheese? You won't eat? You won't spend 24 hours being forced to listen to music by the Backstreet Boys or nails on a chalkboard, which are so similar that I guess it was unnecessary to put both in the same sentence. You won't watch any Adam Sandler movie made after 1998? Those are all reasonable lines in the sand. But where have you drawn your line, Meatloaf? Meatloaf has ed evidently laid down the parameters of what he will and won't do for love. But what about us? I would venture a guess that all of us in the body of Christ want harmony. We want to see our churches continue to grow and all the members of the family remain healthy. We want newcomers to feel welcomed and for longtime members to feel valued and included. We would do anything for unity. Or would we? Are there certain lines that we draw, even if subconsciously? Could it be said that we would do anything for unity, but we won't do that? I believe that all Christians in multiracial churches want the fruit of complete unity, but there are some hindrances that can block us from that. There are some areas that people are unwilling to work on or unwilling to overcome that can keep cultural inclusions from happening. Let's look at some of the potential obstacles that we can face as individual Christians that might hinder us in our collective goal of moving toward cultural competency. Now, when I began to play organized team basketball in the early 1980s, everyone wore very short game shorts. That was the normal style. Remember that, Jason? The yeah, short it's shorts. It's kind of back. Yeah. Still not, not all the way back, but and that's actually going to become important in a minute. Um, you're right, okay. though. Michael Jordan changed all that. He came out flying high, tongue wagging, and with baggy shorts that went past his knees. By the time the 90s rolled around, it seemed everyone was wearing their shorts like that. It quickly became the societal norm. All our clothes became big and baggy, and we liked it. But that has started to shift. Now, let me stop there. You remember the the time in the 90s when we all just wanted to be like Michael Jordan, right? Yeah, well, yes. Even now, I still want to be. It's, it's probably not going to happen yeah. at this point. Um, but, <laughs> you know, good luck. Um, yeah, well, we'll keep but, it alive. Man, was I on that train in the old Gatorade commercial. 
they nailed it when they did the, you know, like Mike, if I could be like yeah. Mike, because yes. they didn't start that movement. They just seized upon it. We, I mean, mm-hmm. remember guys would like hang their tongues out like Mike and, you know, everything. Absolutely. Everything. Yep. So, so it quickly became the societal norm. Our clothes became big and baggy and we liked it, but that started to shift. As I walked into gym after gym to watch my 15-year-old play in his high school games, he's now 17, I've noticed that the boys want to wear shorts that are increasingly tighter and as high up from the knee as possible. And I'll tell you, Jason, if their shorts are not high enough up, they'll roll them. Roll them. (laughs) Yeah. Roll them up. That's right. Absolutely. What's amusing, though, is that the athletic association in our state, which is Minnesota, has now created rules forbidding players from rolling up their shorts at the waist to make them a little <laughs> higher off the knee. Long baggy Amazing. shorts are now considered proper fashion by the powers that be, forgetting that when our generation started wearing that style three decades ago, it was considered thuggish, and many schools tried to block it. So what's the problem now with shorter basketball shorts? Well, nothing. It appears that perhaps they just don't like the style, so they find excuses to reject it. It's all too easy to fall into that state of mind. We can convince ourselves that we have good reasons for not wanting something around or not taking part in it, but often the reason is a little more than that it is unusual for us or does not meet our preferences. It's simply a matter of taste and no more. But we delude ourselves into thinking that we have much more profound reasoning. What would be our response if the sermon on Sunday was theologically sound, but was done in the style of a spoken word poem? Millennials might love it, but how would the older generation would respond? What if a special song performance was done right after communion, but it was a moving and lyrically deep rap song? Some might not like it, but why? Could it be that some have just decided they don't like that type of music, even though lyrically it has the most possibility of being prophetic and carrying deep truths? Would it cause problems for some if a new family moved into the congregation that made a habit of just dropping in unannounced for a meal or fellowship time? That might not be your norm, but it is in many cultures. Would you embrace it or come up with a litany of excuses as to why it was unacceptable? When we allow our preferences to define standards or limits or to create boundaries within our groups, it can become a problem because it restricts those who feel that their opinions or cultures are unwelcome. So, Jason, we, we have this this dynamic where, um, you know, uh, doing things cross-culturally or being all things to all people is a challenge. Uh, there's no doubt. And there's unfamiliarity. There's, you know, I don't know how to operate within that group, but then there's this, this dynamic of, uh, I just don't like it. It's not mm-hmm, how mm-hmm. it's not my preference. And so I'll make excuses or I'll, you know, I, that's just not me. That's not the way I do it. And then that impacts, uh, the, the community life of the church church. What, what has been your experience in this area? Uh, what have you seen here? Yeah, well, first of all, the the basketball uniform discussion uh, uh, 
brings me back to the nightmare of, uh, you know, grades eight through 12 (laughs) being, um, being six foot four and having to wear shorts that seem like they were made for someone five, two. And I remember we used to, we used to sit in, you know, pregame with our shorts pulled over our knees to try to stretch them out. Um, and, and the frustration, you never understood why. And when they'd order new uniforms, it's not like they would adjust. Yeah. Um, you're huh. still, they're just newer versions of uncomfortable, awkward uniforms. <laughs> and it was the same, and it's the same thing with the, with the, with the, the, um, shoes. And it was like that in the NBA until not that long ago where, um, you know, you, everything is very uniform. The shoes you would wear, uh, the, and you couldn't step outside of that. And it affected the way people played. It affected the way the team operated because you felt so uh, out of your um, what's normal, you know. And yeah. so um, but any any element of diversity in that atmosphere, it's like the unity, the uniformity, whatever was so delicate that it didn't, um, and it wasn't in fact a unity. It was just a, a kind of veneer of, of unity based on what you were wearing. And so that the, it wasn't based on players all playing the same, but it, it kind of, it's like starting from the wrong, the wrong place. It's like, if we, if we all look the same, then by definition, we'll be unity unified and that it doesn't work like that. Yeah. Um, and so that it's, um, yeah, it's, it's a, it's a fragile, uh, it's a fragile situation though, because, uh, it can, you know, again, going with the basketball thing, if, if you get too crazy, who's the guy, uh, the bird man, what was his name? Anderson. Chris uh, Anderson. Yeah. Yeah. With Miami. So, I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. He was at Denver for a while too. Wasn't yep. He? Yep. Yep. Um, but the, uh, I mean, self-expression can get away from you and then it becomes less about the team and it's all about you. So this is such a, um, you know, this is a discussion where balance and uh, understanding and flexibility is really necessary. I don't know if any of that makes sense. I'm just, uh, I'm kind of stuck on the, maybe it's because I've been watching the last dance that I just want to talk about basketball, but right, yeah. Well, we've all been uh, watching The Last Dance. Um, yeah. At, at least in, in my household, it's a it's a Sunday night ritual. Uh, totally. Now that it's over, you know, uh, who, who knows what's next? It's like, well, you know, there, there's literally, people are so desperate for sports right now that there is literally a uh, league that they are developing yeah. on marbles racing have you seen that yeah. <laughs> no that's amazing oh it's literally yeah. these guys cut these long channels in in a beach yeah and they yeah. release these oh, marbles yeah it's yes. becoming a pro I league now Unbelievable. it's a pro league yeah. and they all have their names and and it's it's going to be televised it's like a real deal yeah because we're so desperate Un- uh, unimpressive yeah, yeah. so there you go. Well, well, I'll tell you, here, here, here's the, you know, I, I guess if that, you know, maybe I was rambling there, but the, the tie-in is I think sometimes unity in a communal setting 
can be, um, you can use the same kind, you can start from the wrong place. So you say, well, if we all look, act, talk, walk, sing alike, then by definition, we're absolutely unified. Um, and that, that, you know, that may or may not be the case. I mean, I think it's, it's the wrong place to start from. And we work so hard at protecting that kind of outward unity. And it's ironic because underneath we're not in fact unified. Yeah. And, and so there's a, there's a deeper level of unity that has to take root. Um, so it's almost like we're, we're defending the wrong, you know, building fortresses around the wrong, around the wrong areas, I guess. So the wrong, the wrong having the wrong battles. Yeah. Well, and it, it's interesting because I, uh, when I think of this, I think, you know, um, there, there is very different uh, preaching styles, for instance, between a, a traditional mm -hmm. uh, a white Western American church and an African-American style of preaching. And totally. I, I've actually, you know, I looked at our church and I said, man, right now, the way we're constructed, we don't really uh, utilize that style. Um, mm -hmm. and we, we are a diverse church. We have a, a somewhat diverse leadership group, but we don't have any brothers that preach on a regular basis that, that utilize that style. And so I thought, man, I'm going to, I'm going to put in some work. I, I'm not saying I'm like talking about pretending to be something that I'm not or acting like I'm black, but I'm going to, I'm going to learn the theology and, you know, mm -hmm. some of the things mm -hmm. that go behind that preaching style um, so that we can be more diverse and, and right. hit people, you know, where it, it, home for them. And so I've done that on a number of occasions and it, I never announce it. I just sort of do it. And, you know, this sermon is in this style or whatever. And it, it has really connected with, you know, we're, sure. you know, African-Americans and people come up and be like, Whoa, that's so amazing. That's the kind of preaching I grew up with or, or whatever. But I say all that, uh, not at all the like, you know, oh, look at me or anything like that. But uh, there's been a couple of occasions where overwhelming the response has been really good. And I, I would even say a majority of, uh, you know, people that that's not their cultural background have enjoyed it and taken part in yeah. it and seen how much their brothers right. and sisters enjoy it. But there's been a handful of people who are like, you know, I've even heard of people like, well, I just I got up and walked out because it was too it wasn't my thing. I didn't know how to respond. I saw that other people yeah, were really yeah, digging yeah. it, but it just wasn't connecting for me. And and well, I understand that and I appreciate that. And that's something we can, you know, patiently talk through and uh, help people with. The, I think there's a real blind spot there to say, what if everybody who preferred uh, a more African-American style of preaching got up and walked out every mm -hmm. time we engaged in yeah. white style of preaching? Yeah, yeah, and that's right. Yeah. You know what I mean? And so in the body of Christ, man, mm -hmm. there's this like preference can't become uh, king yeah. uh, because... I can tell you this, we won't have unity of preferences, King. Yeah. Yep. 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 Yeah. 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 
you know that the the and the uh, the worship services, uh, of course, those are the most obvious uh, moments when all of this is brought to the to the fore because it, you know of course it's a time when everyone's together, but the um, it, it I, I it's for this reason that I think the kind of thought we put into a Sunday gathering, I mean, it's really important because it does set the trajectory for how the community operates when you leave. Um, and I, I think this is why, you know, of course, preaching and um, our singing is another, is another place where this shows up yes. with the, um, with different styles of worship. And, and even just to take, if you, if you look at, um, well, there's an assumption that younger people like, you know, Christian music off the radio. I think that's a wrong assumption. Quite <laughs> I, don't, I don't think it's as popular as people imagine it is with most people, you know, it, around my generation when they started uh, slowly moving acapella singing to the periphery and bringing out what to me felt like, uh, you know, Sandy Patty. Oh jeez! Like, uh, okay. like the, like the uh, confession the time. Bland. Confession yeah. time. I would rather be drug across broken glass than have there to listen go. to contemporary I, well, Christian I'll tell music. You. Yes, that, that's right. And and I think, but the assumption was this is what will will help people of my generation connect. I'm like, no, you couldn't couldn't be further from the truth. Like the the acapella singing actually resonated more. But in the interest of trying to create a, a certain vibe, you know, now you're hard pressed in many churches like ours, even where acapella singing was a, a staple. Um, it all uh, sounds pretty similar, but just in a different it's a different style. Yeah. Um, and I have, uh, you know, being involved in creating Sunday services for a long time, I can't tell you how many older members will say, you know, they're trying, they're trying to connect, but there's a, um, I miss, I miss the old singing. And so there's another example of what we set before the congregation really can determine. And so you're talking about a situation where just the style of preaching is revealing of some people's maturity and heart. Um, and I think we have to work hard to bring that balance. And it is going to rub some people the wrong way, but at least then you're in a position to be able to have these kinds of discussions. Yeah. Um, whereas if you always go down the same road just to keep, you know, quote unquote peace, um, many people are beneath the surface. Um, there's a neglect there uh, at some level. Yeah. Great point. Anyways, it, yeah. No, that's yeah. good. Let me, let me get a, <clears throat> excuse me, a further yeah. chunk of um, reading here. You know, it, it, I'm, I'm so bad at this that I just cleared my throat. I literally have a cough button, but I didn't push it, and I just cleared my throat on the air. So uh, <laughs> that's the high-quality podcast yeah. that you're listening yeah. to here. Because yeah. I certainly... Yeah, Sony Studios. Yeah, I made, I made that point before. I'm not going back and doing editing, so you get what you get. No. Um, yep. we, uh, we're first take around here. Unfilter. That's right. That's right. So I have an element of my personality that annoys even me. It's been with me since I can remember. I don't like to try new things. 
As a child, I would not play sports or games that I wasn't good at. I wouldn't try foods that I didn't already know I liked. On the one hand, I accept that instinct and don't stray from it very often. But at the same time, I recognize how limiting it can be and wish that I could rid myself of it. Some of us are adventurous and willing to boldly go into the unfamiliar, but others of us avoid it like the plague. This revulsion toward the unfamiliar kept me from trying things like yogurt, guacamole, and Indian food for years until my wife finally forced me to taste them. And guess what? Turns out I love all those things. I didn't want to play Ultimate Frisbee for years simply because I'd never participated in it. Once I finally played it, I liked it. I was even certain that I wanted no part of a collectivist culture. I like my individualist experience and would like to keep it that way. Thank you very much. But then we started to travel and interact with these types of cultures, and I instantly fell in love with that worldview and embraced many aspects of it. The instinct to stay with the familiar things we like works well when we're in our own little world that we have created. But as soon as we start to interact with other spheres, it can quickly become a real hindrance. This obstacle is a bit different from the previous one. We might not be open to things because we don't like them. But often what keeps us from engaging in new experiences is that we think we won't like it or we're afraid of the unknown. Mm -hmm. Let's just stick to what we know and like. What harm can come from that philosophy? Actually, it can cause a lot of harm when it comes to creating and maintaining a multicultural community. Additionally, when we stick to our own cultural practices, we may never experience the thrill and variety of doing things in a new and fresh way. A few years ago, I was at the Minnesota State Fair with my son and wife. My wife was in line to get a bucket of chocolate chip cookies from Sweet Martha's, something that has become a well-known and much-loved Minnesota tradition. Now, I'll tell you, Jason, people go crazy about these cookies. They, they do, like, over the 10 days or whatever it is of the State Fair in Minnesota, they make, like, $3 million, Sweet Martha's, on Jeez. selling cookies. That's pretty much all they do is just those 10 days all year, um, and that's it. And so you can't buy them at the store. You can't buy them at the store. And I don't know, Minnesota people swear by it. I think they're a little overrated. Um, okay. I'm probably going to get hate emails for saying that publicly, <laughs> but um, my mom's chocolate chip cookies are better than sweet Martha's. That's just, there's nothing like mom's. Chocolate yeah. That's chip just the hard reality of life, but you know, yeah. what are you going to do? Mm-hmm. The lines for these cookies can get long. So while we were waiting for her, my son spotted a friend of his from school and we went over to talk to him and meet his mother. His friend's family was from Somalia and were Muslim. Now, if you know anything about Muslim Somalis, you know that they have a very strong culture and they've continued to maintain that they've continued to maintain while living here in the United States. But I wasn't thinking through any of this as we approached my son's friend and his mother. We struck up a conversation and talked for several minutes, even though it began to seem like his mother would rather have been anywhere else than in this interaction. Eventually, we wished them a good evening, and I walked away. My son talked with his friend for another minute or two before noticing that his mother had come back from her conquest with a bucket full of cookies. He quickly said his goodbyes and joined us for the feast. 
It wasn't until later that I realized why his friend's mother was so uncomfortable. In their culture, it is not normal for a man to talk with a woman in public like that. She had graciously endured it, but I had committed a pretty big faux pas in that situation. I should have at most introduced myself as my son's father and left it for the boys to converse, not directly addressing his mother. Or I could have waited for my wife to return and engage in a conversation. According to her cultural expectations, my behavior was inappropriate. Being that they live in the United States, I'm sure she's grown accustomed to this breach of their protocol as a member of the non-dominant group, but I'm positive that it still felt rude to her. It is the fear of making mistakes like this that can keep us from interacting with people of other cultures. And trying to learn more about their customs or engaging in cross-cultural interactions or activities. We don't want to offend someone. We don't want to look foolish. We don't want to expose our ignorance. So we just avoid these interactions altogether. How do we avoid making mistakes and offending others while interacting on a cultural level? Well, we don't. We will make mistakes. We will do things that seem off-putting to others, if not downright rude. That's okay if we keep in mind that we are engaging in the difficult work of being all things to all people and never forget why we are doing it. Then the risks become acceptable. I'm willing to look foolish mm-hmm. or blow it at times because the larger mm-hmm. goals of, of unity and inclusion are worth it. Am I more than willing to, I'm sorry, and I am more than willing to overlook these mistakes when I know that someone Mm -hmm. is trying to get to know me and my culture. We were at an American-themed restaurant in Africa enjoying the food and ambiance one evening when suddenly the entire waitstaff came out to entertain the patrons. They played an American song and while donning straw cowboy hats, attempted to perform a hoedown of some sort, punctuated by an occasional outburst of hee-haw. They got several (laughs) things wrong, and it almost came across as more of a caricature than an homage, but I knew they meant it as the latter. So rather than getting nitpicky and being offended, I enjoyed it for what it attempted to be. People may make mistakes, but we can become a gracious community that gives people the space to learn from those mistakes. 1 Peter 4.8 reminds us that love in a community will cover over a multitude of sins, It will also smooth over a gaggle of mistakes and cultural offenses. First important question there, Jason, do you like my use of the word gaggle? (laughs) Yeah, that, that, uh, that I was stunned there for a second. I was like, gaggle. Okay. That's right. I mean, it works. Yeah. Well, that's, that's the breadth and depth of my vocabulary. No, that's good. Yeah. Gaggle. (laughs) I like it. I don't even ever use that word. I'm not sure where that <laughs> came from. That's, that's what's so awesome about writing is you would never say that. Right. It works. It's yeah. not like I would come up and be like, there's a gaggle of students over there. <laughs> uh, yeah. Strewn all over the yeah. place. There is uh Right. Oh, yeah. Oh, that brings up word. a funny story to mind. But I'll, I'll tell you later. I'll tell you uh, when we're done recording. Uh, it'll, it'll be our secret story. So, um, but so Jason, we just read here and and considered, uh, the idea of, you know, not, uh, engaging in cultural inclusion because it's unfamiliar, um, or we're afraid to make mistakes. 
mm-hmm. what are your thoughts on that? How how do you overcome those uh, potential obstacles? Yeah, yeah. Maybe you know. Maybe this is just my answer for everything because it's what you know. I'm I'm discovering as I get older. But yeah, there is a there is a certain level of humility um, needed there um, because you have to be you have to be willing to to not to to make it obvious that you don't know. I mean, I think especially. I don't know. For me, I, it's. I guess there's. I struggle with, you know, that kind of arrogance. Like I understand all cultures. I know exactly what to do in all situations. Um, and I'm. I'm learning more and more to just be like, yeah, I don't understand that. You know. Um, and I think if your spirit is loving, and and I think generally you can pick up on that when someone's like, I really want to understand. I want to you know, be closer and create unity. Um, those kind of questions are welcome. I welcome them. I mean, people want to know about, you know, my family or our way of doing things. But I think, yeah, that that risk does take some, it takes some love. It takes some, uh, you're directing attention away from yourself, that there's another world outside of yourself uh, that's worth knowing about. But yeah, I like the fact that you, you, you talk about your willingness to look looks stupid um a willingness a willingness that i have fully embraced in every area of life (laughs) well you're gonna look stupid anyways you might as well embrace it (laughs) exactly yeah (laughs) yeah um yeah totally i I mean and and i found you know my i guess my (laughs) you know i'm i i've said this before i think uh, on these podcasts but i i I grew up in Lodi, Wisconsin, or at least I went to high school there. And, you know, I, I am, I gave up, you know, heart and soul as this white kid in a farm community, you know, into hip hop, which is (laughs) inner city, inner city subculture, you know? And so I, as, as I started to branch out beyond Lodi and spend time in cities and, you know, uh, be involved in the hip hop community. Here's this, you know, this big white guy that's, you know, just doesn't belong. And I've, man, I've made a lot of, I, I've assumed a lot of things. But I, I think that experience has, because hip hop is, it comes out of a culture so different from my own. It's helped me um, be okay with looking awkward. Everyone, there's a certain level of sympathy with that. Um, but I think you know. This is what, here's the here's the the guy from the small town that. Um, but you learn, you know. I I, I learned how to how to um, embrace that. Like, yeah. yeah, I'm not I'm not trying to say I'm you know I wasn't there, you know whatever Sedgwick buildings when hip hop was born. I'm from Loda. Yeah. Um, and so. Um, yeah, embracing that, but but still um, going in, going for it. Um, so what would you say, Jason, as a minister, if, uh, you know, let's say your church decided, hey, we're going to do some things differently. We're going to, uh, you know, do some sermon and singing styles and, uh, you know, some parties and fellowship styles that that are more inclusive, more out of the norm for the dominant culture. 
And the response of several people was, no, why are we doing that? I, I just, yeah, that's not how we do things. That's not comfortable. That's not me. Um, you right. shouldn't make me do things in a new way. How would you respond to that person? Uh, just yeah, real quick that, here uh, in that situation. To a person, just like individually? Yeah, you know, a yeah, person I, or a small group. Yeah. Uh, you know, this is a, this is a challenge because, you know, like the, I don't know if the saying applies, but you, you got to break eggs to make an omelet. You know, I, I think we can overuse that mindset, but there is a sense in which, <clears throat> you know, the, you know, you can give in to, cause you don't want to create that kind of tension. You don't want people to feel like that. Um, I think I'd, I'd try my best. I, I'm sympathetic towards that. I don't like it when people make changes. I do think a certain level of discussion and prep is needed. I mean, yeah. I, I think let, we've talked about this before. If you just launch into something uh, foreign to most people in the room, you're going to have that. And some of that might be your fault as a, as a liturgist, as a, yep. as a, a community leader, whatever. But um but yeah, there's a, I, I'd be sympathetic at the same time. I think you have to be willing to say, uh, because it makes you uncomfortable, it's not a good enough reason to not move forward you know, yeah. and, and push that. And I, I think that's hard. And I've, I've also been on those, that, that end of the discussion. So, yeah. um, so I think there's a sympathy. I think the other thing is I would pray, uh, you know, as a minister, I think, <laughs> You know, you can't manufacture humility or, you know, openness or courage in in people. So I think there's a sense in which um, if this is something that's necessary and it affects a whole group of people, I'd be willing to have someone upset, but I wouldn't leave them in their in their anger. Or yeah. Their confusion. yeah. So I don't know. I don't know if that's, I don't no, know if that's, that's good. good. I don't know yeah, if well, I you know, put that's that good. before seminary class. Yeah, walk, walk, you know, I think you walk people through what humility looks like. And, uh, you know, the only thing I would add to that is um, I talk about it in the beginning of the book, having our, our why bigger than our what. And well, remembering you that, yeah. you know, this is this is God's uh, mission to gather the nations and mm -hmm. he's calling us mm -hmm. to be all things to all people. And that's that's got to be bigger Um you know, than than uh, than the challenges and discomfort and yes, you know all of that. Yeah, I mean, you you have yeah. you know you have a, a toddler now who's fast even leaving the toddler age, but right, you know, not too distant uh, past. Uh, you were changing diapers uh, quite a bit, and uh, you know, or. or may still be i don't know she's out of diapers now no, no praise god that's that's not happening yeah well so yeah, yeah so but you know I'm good with that why would why would you change another person's you know feces and wipe it <laughs> yeah it's because no. the why you, you love this kid is <laughs> yeah. bigger than the fact that because as a general policy i don't wipe yeah. other people's feces i just don't do it as right. a, you know it's not something i would volunteer <laughs> yeah. like Hey, do you need any great help? Great choice you know. and analogy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's great. That's a good one, right? Uh, yeah. Listen, I, I I love that, and I think that that goes to to what I meant by the preparation and teaching. I think 
Um, and again, this goes into why I believe, you know, I've had lots of discussions with, with ministers about what is the value of a sermon or teaching. And, you know, I mean, in, in our, uh, in, in our, you know, I want to be careful here, but I think churches, Bible churches, churches that are very, um, excited about the practical value of scripture um i think oftentimes we can we can get so focused on well here's what you do with this bit of scripture here's how it applies that it can sometimes create a kind of preaching that's so focused on the individual and the individual's life that we start to foreground the individual and the whole purpose of scripture is so that you, you know, it's the whole, you know, I mean, I don't, don't offend anyone, but it's the whole your best life now. You know, there's some of that that's very important. You know, we want to be our best versions of ourselves, but I think foregrounding uh, God, God, the triune God and his love and his, the risks that he takes, his, his vulnerability. I think, um, you know, it's really important that we talk like that in church because, you know, there there's a word that doesn't uh, hasn't made it. It's not a very popular word, but it, it's ecclesiolatry, and it would be you know the, the worship of of the of the church. And when we foreground us all the time, when it's always us, uh, we're always talking about us. It's harder to have a why. You're, you're, but but I think when you center mm. a church on a steady diet of who God is, uh, of, of how he interacts, how, the, how within uh, Trinity God interacts, uh, but, but how God interacts with Israel, how God interacts with the church, um, and his dreams and vision, I think it gives you motivation to be flexible. It's harder, though, to introduce that um, on the spot. If you're not speaking like that, Last thing I'll say, and I don't go on a sermon, but I think I think if if a community is turned in that direction, and you're constantly being nourished on the whys and the who, um, not to the not to the detriment of the practical and you know the individual. I'm not saying you get rid of that, but it, 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 you're you're in a better position to take some of these risks. Um, and I've found in my own teaching, there's been times where I'd want to make a risk like that, but I haven't done the hard work of talking about yeah. God's dream. You know what I mean? And yeah. so it's a harder sell for people yeah. um, because they've been led to believe that it's it's all about the church or it's all about the way we do the church. Or, anyways, I don't know if that makes sense, but yeah, yeah the why, man, it's big. No, that's really good. That's good. Let me let me do the last little bit of reading here, and then yeah. if you have a, a final word, and we'll uh, call it an episode. As a young teen, I was pretty convinced that being married was easy. You met someone, fell in love, and then got married. That's all there was to it. The magical part of that formula was falling in love. It would just happen and require no work. In fact, I thought that if you had to work at a relationship, it was probably a sign that this person wasn't the right one. It just wasn't meant to be. Of course, my childish perception was about as opposite as you can get from true love. It doesn't just happen. It takes work and lots of it. That's the hard truth about love and marriage. Most of us understand that. 
Yet, we can easily forget that this same principle applies when it comes to being part of God's family. It doesn't just happen without effort and intention. In opposition to that, however, I've met a number of Christians who have resisted this. They were, in fact, staunchly opposed to any conversation about cultural competency, inclusion, or effort. One person even told me, quote, I shouldn't have to work that hard to be part of my own church, end quote. That's one way of looking at it, I suppose. But that mindset will result in culturally homogenous communities of exclusively like-minded people. It cements the dominant culture in place and leaves no room for growth or increasing diversity. To be all things to all people requires effort. It demands that we get out of our comfort zone and embrace new and unfamiliar ways. You should have to work at it to be part of the diverse body that God desires us to be. Is it divisive for a husband and wife to talk about their areas of conflict and put in effort and hard work to come together as one? Is it divisive when two people who are locked into different ways of viewing an issue seek a conflict resolution specialist to help them come to a place of mutual understanding and harmony? As obvious as the answers to those questions seem to be, there are many who stand opposed to a community working on its cultural diversity because they claim that it will become divisive, that it creates divisions by fostering identities centered around things other than Christ. But this is naive. Becoming culturally competent is not about exalting our ethnic or cultural identities. It is realistic and realistically admitting the power they have to influence our behavior. It's not dangerous to become aware of the dynamics of culture that can bring us together or split us apart. It is dangerous not to become aware of these dynamics and to act as though any cultural issues will simply resolve themselves and go away because we are Christians now. Our cultural assumptions are not more powerful than our life in Christ, but we do bring cultural preferences, assumptions, and training into the kingdom. When Paul says that his goal is to become all things to all people, he is clearly indicating that he is willing to recognize the power of culture and to work at it so that it becomes a tool to advance the gospel rather than an obstacle that could limit its spread and effectiveness. Jason, I'll give you the the last word here. Oh boy. I mean, this is, yeah, this is preaching. The, I, I have said um, in my life, like, I, it shouldn't be this hard. It shouldn't be this hard to be a part of a church. I shouldn't have to put up with this. I shouldn't have, and, and um, you're right. I think that's exactly, <laughs> um, I mean, it highlights our, our weakness as human beings, our, our, uh, our, our need to become more like God, to, to, uh, to bear with one another, you know, <clears throat> the, a, 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 a result of being, uh, being close to God or being spirit led is this patience or <clears throat> maybe even better forbearance that we're <clears throat> more humble and we, we trust and we're, we're, we're patient and we, we work on ourselves before we try to change, um, our community. I mean, it's, this is hard. Um, but it's not like that's a, a detour on the, on the road of faith or our walk with God. I mean, that's, that's it. You know, that's, yeah. that's, that's the, that's the game there. That's, that's what it means to walk with Jesus is to, um, 
to be a part of a community that's going to press you to become how God is. Uh, so I, I love it. Amen. Um, there's more, I guess I could say about that. The, the, um, yeah, you, you're making me think too about the, the idea that you would, yeah, you're not, you're not, um, you're not trying to highlight culture for the sake of making one culture better than the other. I think that's another right. trap. And, you know, you're, you're bringing up Paul with the, Paul is by no means an anti-Semite. I mean, he's, he himself is very, uh, you know, he says over and over, he, he's, he's Jewish. Um, but uh, at the same time, he has no problems saying, you know, that, that doesn't, don't let, don't let, uh, don't let the Jews tell you you're, you're a half breed because you're not circumcised. You know, that he's, there, there's a, there's a inclusion of culture while simultaneously a critique when someone tries to, you know, wield like dominance of one culture. Um, mm. And so I, 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 I like that. Um, uh, yeah, celebrate culture is big, but there's 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 um, there can be a danger of um, you know one culture being more uh, yeah come to the I guess eclipse other cultures. So yeah, this is um, with the uh, being a being a church. It's important to to look at all the cultures, but not allow one to be king i guess yeah that's great spot on yep that is the goal well jason we're gonna um we're gonna stop here for this episode and we'll have a part two uh, to this chapter so uh we'll we'll have you back in uh next week on the next episode and we're gonna pick up and and begin our discussion uh with andrew johnson the young high school wrestler who was forced by uh, the official Alan Maloney in a wrestling match to cut his dreadlocks. And that's, oh, that's yeah. where we're going to start and talk about right. how that uh, can teach us some important things mm. uh, about culture and uh, awareness and inclusion in the body of Christ. So that's where we'll pick up next week. Thanks for joining us, Jason. Um, it's a pleasure to have you as always. Yeah. Um, you know, peace. Yeah. All right. We'll, we'll talk to you soon. Hey, thanks for joining us um, here on the All Things to All People podcast. Uh, we're going to fade out with uh, my favorite song, Not Taste by Aaron Meyer. <laughs>